Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to Higher Learning with Oz Rashid. I'm here today with Matt Pepsel. Matt is the vice president and godfather of talent optimization with the Predictive Index. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing great, Oz. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. We are going to come back to that title in a little bit. You win title of the year award right there, man. That is awesome. There's really so much to get into with regards to your experience and background. You're in the military. You have a PhD in psychology, soon to release a book. But I want to start here. I want to talk about the predictive index because that's something that our company leverages and something that a tool that I'm really excited about. And so I want to hear a little bit more about the company. You've been there for a very long time and your role as vice president. What can you tell us about PI? Yeah. So I've been at the company about nine years. So predictive index is a talent optimization platform in the sense that we take lots of different types of assessment data. It could be personality, behavioral type data, make sure that we make good hiring decisions, critically important, but also that we can provide coaching and development for people, do team dynamics, understand the levels of employee engagement and performance. There's just so much data that it takes to really get the people part of an equation right. And that's what PI has done for more than 60 years. Yeah. What I really love about PI is it's amazing from a behavioral perspective in terms of analyzing and, and kind of assessing different candidates that you have come through the pipeline, but also the management aspect of it, right? The ability to say, this is how this person best learns, this is how this person best manages. That's great for all stakeholders involved, right? Whether it be the manager or whether it be the actual individual that's being hired. So I couldn't be a bigger fan. And I really love what y'all are doing over there. I want to go back a little bit further in time, though, because you were a sergeant in the Marines. I'm really interested to know how your time in the Marines maybe prepared you for the business world. It was my first real adult job. When I think back, I had only fractured concepts of how the working world for adults would have been like. I like to say that when I showed up to boot camp, they gave me a, two things. They gave me a shaved head and they gave me a book of leadership principles. And I thought, oh, okay, great. I got to study these because this is obviously what adults do. Spent six years in the Marine Corps and really enjoyed a lot of that foundational work and really enjoyed the nature of service. And I got to jump out of airplanes and all that fun stuff. But when it came time to separate, I was ready to go get into the corporate world. And I went back and got my MBA and did some computer type work and showed up for day one on the job. And I'm like, I'm ready for more of that leadership development. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not something that we really have here. I'm like, oh my gosh, it made sense to me later that, you know, if you're in the Marine Corps and you need a new colonel, you can't just go and put out a help wanted ad. You have to develop from within. And that certainly has not been my experience in the corporate world. So I think it prepared me in many great ways, but it also may have set a false expectation about the things that many companies should be doing, but frankly, aren't. Or provided an opportunity. I'm fascinated by that because you come into the Marines at an entry level and from day one, they are preparing you to be a leader, which to your point is not happening in the corporate world. So I, I find that awesome. Are there any principles that you remember from that book that you still adhere to to this day? Oh yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times when they talk about leadership traits and they'll They'll quiz you on this like a weekend. You know, you've had your knowledge, they call it. It's a little binder and it's got all your leadership tips in there. And it says like justice and judgment and integrity. These are mm. the types of traits and they define exactly what these mean for you. Tact and discipline and endurance and enthusiasm, all these things. So it's like, how do we take these leadership traits 
and make sure that we understand what we're developing into you, because you're going to need these to lead in some pretty hairy situations, potentially over the course of your career, you know, people's lives literally at stake. It was very interesting to start to see that, then to observe the way that they approach their work. Marines take things very seriously, obviously, when it comes to execution and this type of leading with integrity. And that was a really great experience and exposure to have that early in my career. I love that. And so I don't want to generalize, but I have to imagine it's not that common to be in the Marines and then go get your PhD in psychology. So I'm just interested, what drove you down that path to make that commitment? Having been witness to a very well-run organization and then being plunged into organizations that weren't quite as well-run made me appreciate what that was all about. When I was crossing the Atlantic, I was going on my first tour of my first deployment, as they call it. I was going to the Red Sea and getting deployed to Somalia. This takes 10 days for American warships to cross the Atlantic Ocean. So I had plenty of time. And I went to the ship's library and I picked out two books that ended up changing the course of my career. The first was a general psychology book, 101. I had never taken a single psychology class. I was fascinated by the mind and perception and developmental psych, all of it. And the other was a book by Tom Peters in search of excellence. And it studied really great companies. And I was blown away by the fact that some companies could do really well because they got the people part right and came out of a McKinsey model. And I was just fascinated by excellence in the corporate sector. So those two books made me want to go and get my MBA and start to think about corporate America and how to help organizations perform at their best. But as I got pulled into the people part of it, people performance, the psychology of work. I just always have really enjoyed coaching and leadership and mentoring and these types of things. And what is it that helps people get to their next level so they can help their organization be at its next level? And for that, I had to go back and study psychology at the PhD level. I love that. I'm always looking for good book recommendations. So in search of excellence, I'm definitely adding that to the list. I find that- It's like a precursor to good to great. And before that one was popular. So this is going back a ways, but the mindset that In Search of Excellence found in McKinsey's 7S model, there's something they called the hard S, which is like the rigorous aspects of execution and operations must have, as well as what they used to call the soft S, which is the people part. So culture and all these types of things. And it was really a nice integration of the two you know, that I got exposed to at a pretty early age. Yeah, I've read Good to Gray. I am definitely going to pick that up and check that out. So when you're in the Marines and then you get your PhD in psychology, it's probably not even a natural step to immediately start to go into the software world. And I believe you were with software companies prior to PI. So what drove you? This is, you know, I wouldn't say that software was nascent at that time, but this is still pretty early on in kind of the technology cycle, specifically in the behavioral and psychology space. What caused you to go get into the software world? Yeah, I think I've always just been interested in consuming technology. I had computers at an early age where you would take off the case and you'd upgrade the RAM and all these kinds of things back in the day. Just really fascinated by what technology can allow us to do and how it makes things more powerful, more connected. I was very early days in the internet before there was even a graphical web. I started to connect to the local public library and start to get into fact books and all kinds of weird stuff. So when it came time for me to get my first job outside of the military, I knew I wanted it to be in technology, and I suspected that I wanted it to be in software. So I started up with a company that was during the dot-com explosion back in the millennium. It was really a kind of an interesting ride, but at the same time, I learned that you have to run a fundamental business, and ours wasn't. So the company struggled for a little while before it really found its footing as a high-tech sort of startup mode. And it was back in the day when, before there was software as a service, there was 
application server programming and ASP and all this kind of hosted stuff. And so I was very fortunate to kind of learn about subscription software models from the very beginning. And that's certainly the way that most software is purchased today. Life is a lot of times about opportunity and timing. And for you to get into software back in in that time in the ASP ages and to watch the growth and what's happened and to moving into SaaS into the cloud, I mean, that's a really cool time to get involved with technology. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of amazing things along the way that have informed your journey to take you to PI. So I, I think that's awesome, man. I appreciate you answering some of those questions. I want to jump into hiring because that's kind of our thing here on this, this podcast. Jam. Let's do it. And you've got a little bit of a different outlook because I'm sure you've been involved with hundreds, if not thousands of hires in terms of PI and your own company, but also advising customers and clients on how to be really good at this. So I don't want to put any pressure on you, but I'm expecting a lot out of these answers. Hey, my let's man. do it. <laughs> One sentence or less. What is your hiring philosophy when you're bringing people onto your own team? I think transparency and fit. And I want two-way transparency at that. Like, I think people, when I sit down and I'm interviewing for a position that I'm hiring for, I start by talking a lot about the company because I want to be transparent about what we're all about. And I think that I'd rather spend a little bit of extra time with a candidate to make sure they have a good foundation and me being transparent so I can demonstrate for them the type of transparency I expect for them. And I don't sugarcoat everything either. I talk about the challenges we're facing because I'm hiring them to solve problems. I don't want to pretend like we don't have any damn problems. That doesn't make any sense at all. But then after good transparency, and I expect it from them too, then it all comes down to fit. If there's a lack of transparency, that's a non-starter. But if we're both transparent and we decide mutually that there's not a great fit here, no problem. Maybe there's something else in my company where there'd be a better fit. I've definitely done that. Or maybe there's somebody else, another candidate that might be a better fit that they can refer me to. That's fine too. So I would say two-way transparency and fit. That's really good. Do you have maybe a a really memorable interview experience, good or bad? You don't got to name names, but maybe one that you were interviewing for a job or maybe you were interviewing somebody that when I ask you for a memorable experience comes to mind? Well, one of the first is when I finished up with my MBA program, a lot of the graduates would go into big five consulting at the time. And I put on the cheap suit and the tie and I went and interviewed at one of those big five companies. It was a freaking disaster because I wouldn't have been happy there. They weren't going to be happy with me. I learned in two seconds kind of what I did not want. And that's how I ended up at an internet startup when it comes to uh, the software side, because it was so dramatically different. And so I would say that the interview experience, like getting these questions and being treated like a number, and they were trying to find out, can we grind you to bits? And if you survive, maybe you'll be on a partner path. It was just totally bad fit for me. And I, I shouldn't have even gone to the interview, but I didn't know any better. I just thought, well, this is what MBA grads do. Thank God I didn't take that job. You know, I had been at my company for like two years at this internet startup and I kept in touch with my mates and they would be like, oh, we've already left that job because it was terrible. Well, geez, they spent two years at a company that they hated. So I was fortunate that I stayed at that first company 10 years because I kept getting more responsibilities. It was a great fit. It's very natural for me. So thankfully, my bad interview experience was exactly what I needed because it was not going to work. Yeah, I got a couple of follow-ups there. So maybe the yeah. advisors, parents, and your life friends, were they like looking at you like you had three heads when you wanted to go work at the startup technology company versus one of the big brand, big five yeah, names? Totally. Uh, because I think there's like there's this well-worn path for MBA grads a lot of times. It's like, oh, of course, you're going to go to be a consultant. And of course, you're going to do these things. And it was just thinking that's how it's going to be. When you go join a company that's out of, in my case, Concord, Massachusetts, 30 people, nobody's ever heard of it. They're like, you're wasting your opportunity. There wasn't a lot of dollars, but there was a lot of passion. And over time, all that stuff took care of itself. It was not a popular choice by any stretch among my bride, you know, who's also a Marine. You know, she stayed tough, though. 
you strike me as somebody that's taken the road less traveled multiple times throughout your career. So I think if anything, you're staying on brand and true to yourself, which I think is always a great thing. And listen, I think it's insanity that these consulting companies don't have the greatest candidate experience possible because at the end of the day, people are their product, right? They are putting people on site to solve problems. You would think when it comes to candidate experience, process, how you get the right people into your firm, that they would be at the top, top, top level of it. And so much I hear that is not actually the case. So that's really interesting. And look, I'm thankful for you that you got the opportunity to go do what you did because you wouldn't be where you are had you taken that opportunity. So yeah, no, same. It's a, a blessing in disguise because when you're coming out of it, you're kind of crestfallen that, oh my gosh, all my friends are taking these jobs at these big consulting firms, name brand, blue chip, and I'm not. And once you start to realize that you've got to follow your own path, you've got to be authentic to yourself if you're going to be happy, it does get a little bit easier. But in the moment, it's not easy. So let's segue into candidate experience, because I bet we both think it's super important, right? And you were talking to large companies in terms of advising them. They're looking at purchasing PI software. Obviously, leveraging the software, it's a technology, so it's not actually human interaction. When you're advising your clients in terms of experience and what to do, or maybe experience that you want to put out there for people that you're hiring, what are some of the things that you try to do to make it a little more unique or make it, maybe make it a little more realistic to who you are and what the company is? Yeah, exceptionally important. You're exactly right. You and I agree on that 100%. If you're in a uh, an accounting firm, you're not going to interview your candidates at the loading dock. I mean, that's not going to give the impression that you want. But that's kind of the way that you treat your candidates when your hiring manager spends six seconds looking at a resume on the way to the interview and asks the same questions that the woman before him just asked. It's a terrible experience. I think what we try to do to do it right, one is to collect as much objective data as we can. We definitely want to understand and go past the resume. In our case, we're very fortunate to use our own products because that way we have great data about the candidate and about the job. This is the part not as many people have, is how do we understand the fit that they're going to be entering into? And then I think that there's a certain amount of personality that you want to come out. So like, what's it like working here should be how the interview feels. Too many times, you know, we say, oh, people are number one asset and we will have this great kind of easy light culture. But then- the interview process is about as fun as a box of doornails, right? It's like, no, that's not congruent. That's not what we want to try. So I think that it's really important to make sure that the candidate experience reflects what it's going to be like working in the role to the best extent possible. Probably a holdover from the Marines where we always train as if it's for real, create as much realism as you can before it's mm -hmm. time to be real. It's good advice in a candidate experience as well. I think it's one of the biggest missed opportunities right now in the hiring and interview experience. We are making what I like to think are lifetime decisions, right? When you change jobs, it impacts so many things in your life. And obviously, when you're bringing somebody into your organization, right, you're hopeful that they're going to create a really positive impact. And yet, the realistic job preview, the understanding of what you're walking into, the information you need on both sides to make a great decision, which harkens back to what you said about transparency in such a stilted process that a lot of times can be, you know, remote or a lot of times can be, you know, in a conference room type situation. I think it's just so important that the person knows what they're getting into when they come into that role, whether it be the team, the hiring manager, the culture, and the scope of the opportunity. And then, of course, we want to know everything we can about the person that we're bringing into our organization because we want them to make that big impact. So I'm hopeful that we're going to see some big reformation and changes in that space. I'd like to think that our company is going to help be part of that. But I just think it's such a big, big, big opportunity and something you called out. And something I've said before, it's one of the most simple forms of marketing that we have. Because if your company has any type of scale, I mean, hopefully you're talking a thousand, if not more potential prospective hires over the course of a year. And those interaction points, whether it be how they interact with a job posting or how they interact with one of your recruiters or how they interact with your hiring team and come on site, that's a lot of times going to 
affect how they feel about you and your brand and your products and services. So big opportunity there. And I think you made a good call out in terms of how important that experience is. You want to hear an embarrassing experience? Please. So I'm interviewing for this role. It's somebody on my team that does translation work for us. This is going back probably about three, four years. And I realized by the time I'm walking into the office that I've forgotten my laptop at home. And I called my bride and she said, I can bring it to you. Okay. So I've got this candidate in my office and I get a text. It's like, I'm downstairs with your, your freaking backpack. You need to come get it. Cause I got a whole day ahead of me too, you know, jerk wagon. I'm like, okay, hold on. <laughs> so I said to the candidate, would you like to meet my bride? And she said, yeah, sure. Why not? So literally the very first interaction we have is me walking her down, introducing her to my wife and collecting my computer bag and going up so we can finish our interview. And in that moment, I was just a human being. We were having a conversation. She still works at PI to this day, four years later, because wow. she's fabulous. And I just took the opportunity to not be a robot and pretend like everything in my life was hunky-dory. Things get a little hectic around here sometimes. We're busy people, right? By being authentic. And she was delightful about it. And she blew me away with her credentials and capabilities. And she's done a great job for us ever since. Yeah. Being your authentic self is always the best self. I got to rewind real quickly. Did you say jerk wagon? I think I did. Yeah. Is that a term of endearment your wife uses often? Or? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the one we can use on this show. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. We allow <laughs> customers, just so you know. This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. What is your favorite question to ask prospective hires? So I've learned later in my career, I ask a question, how are you showing up today? How are you showing up today? And when I ask that question, I usually go first. I will have gone first before I answer that question. And I'll talk about my energy level. I'll talk about sort of what's on my mind or how I'm arriving in the meeting. Because I think what it does is it really allows me to create this human connection with somebody who I hope to spend many years with, right? They're going to be on my team. So when I ask them how they're showing up and I go first to create vulnerability for myself to say, I just got out of a meeting and it was a very strategic conversation. I'm really excited about what we talked about. And I'll just let them in to my world a little bit and say, this is how I'm showing up here for this interview. And I'm ready now to kind of learn more about you and tell you about the opportunity that I have to share with you today. How are you showing up today? And then I see what happens. Everything's great. Everything's rosy. Or if they're like, I'm a little nervous right now. I would expect you to be nervous right now. This is a big decision for us both. So now all of a sudden we're having a real conversation. If they say, I was late getting out of the door. I didn't think I'd make it here on time, but thankfully I did. I'd be like, hey, let's just shake it out. You know, that can be a lot to try to pretend like nothing happened. You know, you just walked in, you barely made it. You were extra nervous. No problem. So how are you showing up as a question I've learned to ask? Wow. And so if they give you like a really manicured answer or kind of gloss over it, that's kind of a red flag for you. They're not going to be real with me now. Like it's not going to get any better downstream. Wow. That is a fantastic answer. You know, I was going to ask you later about why they call you the godfather of talent optimization, but I think I just got my answer. That <laughs> level of self-awareness and vulnerability in an interview when you just meet somebody, that has to disarm people. That has to put people in a position where they're immediately more comfortable. I, I love that, Matt. And I might steal that. I got to be honest with you. When you miss on someone you hired after a good interview, and it's happened because it happens to everybody, what typically would you have missed? I think job fit is one. Not necessarily the job fit for the job it is today, but thinking about the layers of jobs. So like, 
I'll hire you to do a job and you can read the job advertisement, but never in the job advertisement does it say, oh, and you're also going to be working with this person who has their own agenda and they're going to be like super aggressive about that. And you have to kind of navigate that. That never shows up in a job description. That only happens after you accept the job and you show up on day one that you learn all that. So I think that thinking through the full context of the role, team dynamics, whenever you get complex teams together, you increase the likelihood of crashing into each other like bumper cars. So you get you know what I call competing goals and competing styles. If I haven't fully thought through all of the implications of this person, not just doing the job on paper, but doing the real job, the full job, that can lead to a miss. Where it's like on paper, yeah, they could do the job in isolation if they were, but that's not how it works. Like, And so maybe they're like really focused on doing this job super well, but they're kind of abrasive with other team members when there's a need for cooperation and some sort of meeting in the middle. That's when it can kind of get the best of me. Wow. That's good stuff. I want to ask you, because you're obviously strategic and really well thought out in terms of interviewing and hiring. Who do you typically, like the roles, what are the roles of the people that you typically bring into the interview process? Is it your team? Is it other stakeholders? Is it other leaders in the company? Like, who do you like to bring to your interviews? Yeah. So definitely the hiring manager has got to make the decision because what I always say is that you can hire somebody who has gaps that's going to happen, but you own the gaps because you're Mm -hmm. the hiring manager. So they definitely have to be in the room and they have to have the final call. I also, though, want to make sure that somebody who's independent, objective, maybe a high performer in the role because they understand the role potentially even better than I do. Even though I'm hiring for the role, I don't necessarily know what the day-to-day is like to do the job. We also include a culture interviewer, somebody who's totally removed from the functional needs of the job, but who can just give us a clean read on the candidate's fit with the culture overall. So that's important as well. And then I think if there's any sort of indirect, like peers, coworkers, people who they're going to have to work alongside, having them involved in the process, that works too. And if it turns into a bigger interview team, hey, I'm glad we had more time to spend with the candidate before we made this gigantic decision than not. So I may not have all those people in early in the process because I want to get comfortable first. I don't want to waste anybody's time, the candidates included, but I would like to have more participation and representation before the final decision is made. Yeah, I really love that. One of the mistakes that I notice a lot of hiring managers and hiring teams make is that idea of what the definition of success in this role looks like, or the definition of what we want in this role looks like, how do you drive that consensus? How do you make sure everybody's on the same page before making that decision? Yeah, I kind of go back to in search of excellence, there's the hard aspects of it and the soft aspects. So like the hard aspects, what is this person being asked to do? Well, the business development rep, they're going to be making a lot of dials. They're going to be setting up meetings. Okay, great. We understand that. What sort of energy, what sort of attitude, what sort of ways do we want them to contribute to the team? Do we want them to balance the team? Maybe we've got a lot of people who are of a different type. Are they going to be able to navigate that? If it's more of the same, that's fine too. But I think there's some of the softer aspects of culture and personality and team dynamic that also need to be taken account of. And a lot of times that's what gets skipped. And that's the first thing that bites you in the butt whenever it's go time and the person shows up for day one and you're like, whoa, now we have to navigate around this. Now we have to coach to this. Now we have to smooth some feathers over here. And that's all time wasted. We talk about talent optimization. That's not optimal. When you have somebody come in your office, hey, I need to talk to you about Charlie. Okay, great. Now I'm wasting time because I made a mistake as the hiring manager because I didn't either pre-negotiate how this person was needed to do a role and the impact it was going to have on your team, or I didn't clear the the obstacles or blockers ahead of time. So now we're going to do it in real time. And it's a lot more expensive and painful to do that now. Should have done it before I made the hire. 
I could literally nerd out all day talking about hiring and interview questions. I mean, this is definitely my passion, but I want to talk a little bit more about your career. So I really appreciate those answers. Tell me this. What is a day in the life of your job like right now? Yeah, a lot of variety, which I love. Absolutely love. So on a given day, for example, I might be working with one of our distribution partners and helping them understand like a new product release. How can they understand how to position that with their clients, whatever it might be. I also do a lot of evangelical kind of work when I talk about talent optimization and how much it's well positioned to help organizations get the people part of business right so that the business part flows a little bit more naturally, which is good. My favorite thing of all is working directly with clients. You know, I was out in the field last week and I'm delivering an executive leadership team workshop and had a chance to really make some critical connections for them that I think are not just change the trajectory of their business, but also change the welfare of their people. And to me, that's the freaking home run right there. I love that. Is there anything in particular you're working on right now or the company's working right now that you're particularly juiced about, you're really excited about? I'm into team dynamics right now. I think that the most interesting and dangerous type of work done in organizations today is team-based work. It's interesting because when you think about any big project that a company is wanting to accomplish, the answer is never, well, Ronald's going to do that. Oh, all by himself? Uh, yeah, Ronald's got it. It's fine. It's $10 million at stake. It's just Ronald. Never. It's always a team. And so it's dangerous because the more complex team, the higher the stakes, the more likelihood of competing goals, competing styles. And a lot of times we do teamwork very badly. So what we found is that in order to help organizations with team-based work, we had to invent new science. And so a part of what I do is trying to work on new aspects of ways to measure team charters or objectives, as well as team behavioral sort of collections of people and how those intersections can predict success or can predict failure if we don't take remedial steps and coach and develop our ways to greatness. I really like playing in the vanguard of the edges of what we know about psychology organizationally, as well as just the nature of commercial work, because we're in a work landscape that we've never seen before. Why would we use the old tools? Like Mm -hmm. they're not going to get us to where we want to go. Preaching to the choir. I totally agree. Now you have a upcoming book coming out in March called Expand the Circle. So tell us a little bit about the book and maybe what motivated you to write on this particular subject. Yeah, I think, you know, we've been through some of my background. So when I started off from a leadership perspective, I started off in the military service. So that was kind of a leg up, I believe, over some of the alternative ways of entering the workforce. And then I had the opportunity, as we've talked about, to study at the highest level, coaching and leadership. And I still freaking hit the wall, Oz. I still couldn't reach my next level of leadership. And I was like, what is happening? Like, I've poured myself into this and I'm still hitting my limits. Like, what is this hidden <laughs> hidden lock, you know, that I can't seem to find my way through. And then at the same time, my father got a call from his oncologist and he had a cancerous tumor on his kidney. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I came face to face sort of with not only his mortality, but my own. And I started to think, we know how this movie ends. And so he went through a lengthy recovery process and thankfully he's doing well now, but it sent me like, okay, Not only do I need to figure out how I'm not showing up the way I want to as a leader, I got to figure out some bigger stuff than this. So I returned to a meditation practice I had long abandoned and I sat there and I stink at meditation. I'm just terrible at it. So I'm thinking about work. And what I found was that somehow this kind of mix in my head about my military experience and psychology and this this new sort of Tibetan practice that I was working on, it all fused together. And I was like, oh my God, this is how I have approached my leadership in waves. So there's this concept 
about expanding the circle of compassion where you wish wellness for yourself and maybe your spouse. Can you stretch it out to your kids and coworkers and all the way out into the universe? And I thought that is how I learned to lead. I had to learn to lead myself before I could lead others, before I could lead teams and entire organizations and eventually out into the world. So that's now through this book, what I teach leaders to do is to liberate themselves from everything that holds us back. Because what we find is that we think leadership is about more. I got to take on more responsibility and do more work, put in more hours. But it's actually about less. If we're talking about less self-judgment, less self-doubt, less fear, all these types of things, it's about letting go and connecting with something that's already there. So that became the inspiration for the book. And I've just been so blown away by what I've learned about leadership to help me get to my next level of authenticity and connection with other people and to really tap into something a lot deeper than I ever knew was there. So it's just a really rewarding thing to be on mission now to try to help the next generation of leaders find their way. Yeah, you tapped into something there that has become a recent passion of mine in meditation. I read Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. And one of the things he says in the books is that he talks to all these different experts in their different space, whether it be music or arts or military or business or whatever it is. And he's trying to drive a through line between what are the common traits of these people that makes these people successful. And he said that over 80% of the people he interviewed meditated. That really resonated with me. And I said, this is something I need to add to my tool belt. And to your point, was very, very difficult for me because my, my mind is running a million miles a minute. I'm thankful that our company got a professional partnership with Headspace, which kind of teaches you how to meditate. It's been invaluable for me. And I really notice it when I don't do it. What is it meant for you? I mean, what do you do it daily? Give me an idea of how it helps you from a professional perspective. Yeah, I do do it daily. And I kind of vary the practice depending on what I'm trying to accomplish in a given day. I find that I get lost in the world of thoughts very easily. So I use meditation to ground myself and try to feel that contact and really tap into something much more natural and robust. I'll give you an example from this morning. I was walking the dog before the sun comes up. And I got this flashlight because you know I'm just trying to see where I'm going. And I thought, this is so artificial that I have this flashlight. So I turned off the flashlight. And last night there was a full moon and it was so bright. I didn't need the flashlight at all. And I felt so much more connected naturally to what was happening around and everything. No batteries required. And I was like, this was here the whole time. But because I was so focused on this artificial, I kind of equated to like external goals and metrics and KPIs and OKRs and all that stuff. It's like, no, let the natural aspects of the mission create that energy that flows through you and illuminate the path. And then all the decisions become so much easier. As I got older, I realized I got too tired to beat myself up all the time, Oz. And it was so great and liberating just to be like, just slow down, sit down, calm down, and let it naturally flow through you. My leadership flowed so much more naturally. People would say to me, Matt, you seem lighter. You seem like more effortless. And I'm like, I feel that way too. I dropped all those heavy bags and it just was, it was so refreshing. That's fantastic. I was at my daughter's flag football game last night and I saw that same full moon and commented myself on how, how beautiful it was and how amazing it was. So there's a connection there. You know, for me, the meditation, and it's been something that takes time. It's like working out. It's something that like it gets not easier as time goes on, but you learn when you're in the right state of mind and when you do it best and how it helps you. What I found is that I'm a pretty passionate guy. I can get caught up in a situation and in the emotion of a situation, or at least I did. And what this allowed me to do is kind of observe myself from a third party perspective, right? And almost have a joystick to control myself in a conversation that I'm watching myself have with somebody else and not be so caught up in that moment. There was a lot of power in that for me. So now I was making measured decisions. I was saying 
things in a more measured and analytical tone, sometimes that passion is needed. And listen, I'm overflowing with that. So I probably could use a little bit of it turned down a notch or two, but that's where it really helped me. And for anybody that's listening, if you haven't gotten into it, especially with everything that's going on with mental health, all the different stresses we have in the world, I'm not saying that it'll be the be all end all elixir, but it helps. And so that would be my recommendation for anybody out there. We typically on LinkedIn go and try to look up a post. You are prolific on LinkedIn and you have so much from a thought leadership perspective. So rather than looking at one in particular post, I'm interested on your view as LinkedIn as a channel to get some of your thought leadership out there and why you like it and why has it been effective for you? Yeah, I'd say it has because I think when you start to put together a quick post, they're not very long, ideally, but it forces you to sit there and really think about what you're thinking about. So you mentioned sort of the difference between the observer mind and the thinking mind. When I write, it's a chance for me to take a step back from myself and make a critical connection that I hadn't made otherwise. So a lot of times I write about some pretty silly stuff in the sense of what sparks a connection to leadership for me. One day I wrote about some geese I saw crossing the road that turned into a connection to leadership and change management for me. And I was like, okay, let's go with this. When you start to slow down and start to observe, like there's lessons everywhere. So that's what I really like about my writing practice is that it forces me to sort of coach myself and like bring these things to awareness, but then write it tightly enough and crisply enough that I could put it out in front of an audience on LinkedIn. What I hate on LinkedIn is when people say, read this great article, you should read it too. Don't give me writing assignments. I'm very busy. I don't need to read what you just read. What did you think about what you just read? Please tell Mm -hmm. me that. Let me in. There's so much self-promotional stuff. I think that the right formula that I was taught, you know, it's give, 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 ask. Because we all need things. And I, I'm the first one to say, how can I help you? But when I need something, I don't want to be ashamed to ask. And I don't feel that shame because I've given a lot. I write a lot. And so that's kind of how I approach it. I, I think that the best thing about LinkedIn that I've found is the connections to people have just been off the charts. There are so many fascinating people out there. Once you connect with them, you get on a quick Zoom call, chop it up a little bit. Hey, what are you working on? What what's excites you? Kind of like what we're doing here it just has spawned all these collaborations and ways to help one another. And it's just been fabulous. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Good stuff. I want to ask you one last thing. If you were able to amplify one nugget of career advice that maybe you didn't have at the beginning of your career, but maybe we can benefit somebody early in their career now, what would that be? Lighten up. In my case, that's what I needed to hear. I've been wound so tight, you know, and it's funny. I I was raised Catholic and I had this shame-based culture and the Marine Corps and you got guilt-based stuff. And it's just, it's, it's, there's a lot of heaviness to my early career. And I think if I could have gotten some of that perspective that you found too, but with your observer mind and saying, what am I really seeing things a little bit more differently? I think it would have really helped me to have a more enjoyable experience. What I found is that by being hard on myself, I got performance out of myself, but I didn't get any sort of enjoyment and contentment. So now what I've found is that it's not an either or proposition. You can have contentment and still get high levels of performance. You don't have to wind yourself up so tightly. You just have to tap into sort of that natural flow and really the authenticity and just accept the fact that you're not going to be the perfect person. Like nobody is. So you have to embrace your flaws and take them as part of your overall story. I didn't learn to do that until much later in life. So I spent decades, decades, Oz, really beating myself up over stuff that was just wasted energy. Once I stopped doing that, or at least mostly stopped doing that, It's really allowed things to flow almost 100% with the grain and with the direction of where I want my leadership to go and show up. And it's enabled me to be of better service to the people in my life. That is great advice. 
the book Expand the Circle comes out in March. If people want to hear more about your thoughts and beliefs, I think that's got to be a great place to go. And then you also have a podcast. Can you tell us the name of it if people want to hear more from Matt? Yeah, the podcast Lead the People. It's on hiatus right now because I got busy with the book, but I'll be bringing it back. And that's another good resource that's out there. I love it, man. I love all these conversations that I have, but I genuinely enjoyed this. I've learned so much myself, not the least of which is the term jerk wagon, which may or may not get used in conversation in the next 48 hours. I got to figure that out. I love it. All right, Matt. Matt, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate you. Have a good one. I really appreciate it. Your passion is contagious. I love it. I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.